So they say, I have no idea what they believe, but I'm just going to turn my heart and bow my knee to the Lordship of Christ. That's not what happens. They have to have heard of Jesus' name to submit to Jesus' name. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Imagine a mission that was doomed to fail before it even started. How many of us, if we were invited to be a civilian on a SpaceX launch and the the payment was made, you're free to go, how many of you would sign up for that, as exciting as that would be to fly into space on a rocket, if you knew that that particular mission was absolutely going to fail before launch day or on launch day? How many of you would sign up to be a part of a church plant team along with elders to extend the exhausting work, extend the mission uh, to the ends of the earth, but to expend that exhausting work that it takes to help start a church, a local fellowship from the ground up, if you knew that going into that, that church wasn't going to make it after four years. We know the Shoreline is the second church that uh, we've planted, and I have to say I would be willing, but I'd be worried if I was going to go to a spot overseas and plant a church knowing it wasn't going to make it. How many of you men would bother to propose to your girlfriend up on the jumbotron in front of the entire stadium if you knew in that moment that you asked, will you marry me? She, in front of the huge audience of thousands, says no, and then everyone begins to laugh at you, right? Would you do that? Imagine being Isaiah the prophet who was given some information before he even started his ministry of prophecy to Israel. Would you be willing to, like Isaiah, be a representative of God to a people that that you knew in advance would not receive your message? Well, Isaiah 6 explains to us that in the year that King Uzziah dies, that Isaiah sees Yahweh seated on the throne and He's glorious, and the angels are, are worshiping, and they're declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, and then Isaiah's response in light of the, you could call it the, the thrice holy God, is dread. He, he, he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people. The entire people of Israel is, is a people of unclean lips. Uh, there in Isaiah 6, an angel comes and touches coal to his lips and says, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And then Yahweh says to Isaiah, who shall I send? Who will go for us? In effect, saying, is there anyone who's willing to go and both declare God's word, but also demonstrate God's character to God's people? And Isaiah, after being you know, touched by the coal, having his sin atoned for, kind of maybe timidly raises his hand and he says, here am I, send me. Now, now listen to the words on the screen that God says after this to Isaiah. This is very, very helpful. And by the way, these are the second most quoted Old Testament verses in our New Testament, right behind Psalm 110 and uh, the various places the Ten Commandments are quoted. Notice what he says. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. 
Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. In all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and in Acts, these words from Isaiah 6 are quoted in reference to unbelieving Jews who reject Jesus as their Christ, as their Messiah, in effect, rejecting the Gospel. And what we're going to see in our text this morning in Romans 10 is more evidence of the scathing indictment that John made in John 1, verses 11 and 12. Remember there where he said, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. We continue our series in Romans with a look at God's sovereign purpose. And this morning in Romans chapter 10, we're going to see Paul asking a series of important questions. But then what he does is he uses the Old Testament to answer those questions. And the writers of the New Testament often quote the Old. In fact, if you want to jot some Bible trivia stats down, there are 200, at least 283 direct references from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And that parses out to one and almost one in every 23 verses. There's a quote, a reference back to the Old Testament. Those are just the direct references, let alone the ones that are kind of veiled or kind of obscure. Uh, We get six of them in our section of Scripture today. And what we're going to see is three things. If you're taking note, I hope you are. These are three things we're going to see. Verses 14 and 15, we're going to see what it means to relay the gospel. We'll see verses 16 and 17, receiving the gospel. But sadly, verses 18 through 21 not only represent Israel, but many uh, who hear the word, and yet we're going to see that they also may reject the gospel. As we learned last week, even under the mercy of God's sovereignty, we must both understand the gospel as well as receive and confess it. And some people will ridicule election, and they'll say, well, hold on. If God is sovereign and he's called people to be saved, then we don't need to evangelize. We, we, God can just save them. The gospel doesn't have to be preached. And that is a very weak argument, and that's one easy to knock over by studying the verses before us this morning. It's not that God hasn't communicated the gospel to the Jew. The problem is that they've refused to believe. Thus, as we relay the gospel, here's my whole thesis today, as we relay the gospel, some will receive it, some will reject it. And in the end, God is sovereign. So let's look at verses 14 and 15 in a series of how questions. This is under relaying the gospel. Look again. How, Paul says, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe if they've never heard? How are they to hear without a preacher? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? Now, John Stott says we can learn the essence of Paul's argument by putting the six verbs in these verses in the opposite order. So note on the screen, this is great. He says, here's the order. Christ sends the heralds, the heralds preach, the people hear, the hearers believe, the believers call in the name of the Lord, and those who call are saved. Now I want to be careful to keep these particular verses in context. Remember from last week, Paul's overall, his, his bigger argument has been that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the logical follow-up question is, okay, well then how come Israel hasn't been saved? The Gentiles have been included, but maybe the Jews didn't get a fair shake or a fair shot. 
And so that's a natural question. Maybe the Jews didn't actually hear. And so in these questions that he asks in verse 14 uh, and on, Paul is presenting a series of diagnostics. Now, when we want to diagnose a problem, some of you do that in your work. That's your whole job is to diagnose problems in your organization. Uh, but I, I want to bring it maybe to the home. If you want to diagnose a problem in the home, like let's just say something dumb like the television remote. The re hopefully you don't watch TV, but if you do, um, the television remote can sometimes not work. And so what happens is you run a series of diagnostics to figure out what is the problem here. Uh, I've done this before. I shake the remote. I don't know what that particularly does. Maybe that frees the batteries from where they're at to work better. Uh, or you replace the batteries. The batteries don't work. Let me replace them. You try it again. It still isn't working. So then you go up and turn the TV off manually like we did in the 80s. Or if you had the old antenna, remember that? We had to stand and your dad is like, okay, don't move. And you're holding the antenna like this. All right, so you may have to replace the remote. You may have to repair it. My point is maybe you just throw the TV away and start reading the Bible more. That'd be great. But uh, the, the, the issue is you, you methodologically, through different methods, you diagnose the problem. Then you solve it and you fix it. So where's the problem here with the Jews not coming to faith? Where's the problem? Was it in the preaching? Was it in the sending of the apostles? Was the problem in the hearing and receiving, the believing? What are the root causes of anyone's rejection of the gospel? And so Paul's first question is, how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And, and this is the critical question that Paul reinforces with the rest of chapter 10, which we'll get to in a moment with a string of Old Testament sources. These are valid questions. How? How are they to believe if they've never heard and the person never preached and the person who was supposed to preach was never sent? Now, uh, near the end of Romans 8, we have what we've called, what many call the golden chain of redemption. You remember these verses when we studied Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? He also glorified. So this golden chain, if you would, is progressive. But here in Romans 10, we seem to have another golden chain. I'd call this the golden chain of gospel mission. And this seems to be a regressive series of actions. So again, if we read it backwards, we see Christ and his church sends out missionaries. Missionaries are faithful to proclaim the gospel. The people to whom they preach will hear the gospel. Some will believe and will call on the name of the Lord. And those who do this will be saved. But if no one is sent at all, then how do we expect anyone to hear? We have, as we uh, look every week, we have as a body of Jesus Christ an obligation, a mandate, and the joy of being involved in God's work to the ends of the earth, to be faithful to send out and support missionaries into all the world. And those missionaries must be faithful to preach the good news to all peoples, and when this gospel is preached, Paul says some will believe. Now, what he's striking at here in these verses is the heartbeat of global Christian mission. How can anyone hear in, unless someone is sent to preach? And I would argue, how can anyone come to faith unless or until we are serious and even strategic about advancing the gospel to those who have never heard? 
Did you guys know that there are as high as 3 billion people in the world today who are presently cut off from even just access to the gospel? Well over 40% of the world uh, it dwells within what we call an unreached people group. And an unreached people group simply means they don't have enough of within their indigenous community of believing Christians that have adequate numbers to go and to, or resources within that people group to reach that or evangelize that people group, people group of their own community. So, so currently, uh, the, the state of missions in the world, global missions, it's not just lopsided, and this is where I get really passionate. It's not just like we could fix it a little bit. It's, it's, it's so imbalanced that it's embarrassing. Did you guys know that if we send out as a church, not our church, but the church, 30 missionaries into the world, one of them will go into unreached people groups, according to some of the stats. One out of 30. In other words, we keep sending people out to plant churches and to do mission work in areas where Christ is already named, where there's already a Bible in a native tongue. If we give a dollar to Christian uh, giving to all causes, so for every dollar, we spend less than a penny uh, among unreached or least reached people groups. In fact, last year, I, I, this stat was interesting. Every year we spend more on Halloween outfits than we do on supporting missionaries among unreached peoples. But I should clarify, not just Halloween outfits for you and your kids, but for your pets. So, so we're quick to make sure that our dachshunds are dressed up as hot dogs, and, and yet Bangladesh and Pakistan and India and Nepal and Sri Lanka and Thailand and Laos and Indonesia and China, just to name a few, have millions and millions and tens of millions of people within people groups who still don't have access to the scriptures who need supported missionaries who will preach the gospel to them that they may hear and believe. How will someone preach to them and how will this happen unless they're sent? Well, in verse 15, Paul quotes Isaiah 52.7. I'd love for you to jot that down. Isaiah 52.7, we'll put it on the screen where he says in verse 15, quoting this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So I had you jot that down. In context, this is Isaiah referring to the beauty that good news brings to God's people in the midst of the torment of exile. And Isaiah is describing those who come to publish good news of future restoration. And he says those people who come with that news have beautiful feet. It isn't that we are beautiful as the messengers, so kind of a deep sigh of relief, but that the message that we bring, the message that we herald is both welcomed and wonderful. If we celebrate the good news of an exile, uh, salvation from exile, being brought back into the land, how much more should we celebrate the glorious message of salvation brought to us through Messiah? But look, look, underline the word preach in verse 15. I want to make sure you, we uh, look at this in verse 15. How are they to hear uh, without someone preaching, and how are they to preach unless they're sent? Um, this word preach is sometimes misunderstood or misused. Hendrickson says this. He says, preaching is actually heralding, proclaiming. Genuine preaching, therefore, means that the sermon is lively, not dry, timely, not stale. It's the earnest proclamation of the great news initiated by God. And it must never be allowed to deteriorate 
into an abstract speculation on views merely devised by man. What I take away from that is that preaching is not creating the message, it's relaying the message. Do you see the difference? We're not here to come up with some great truth. We're simply to herald it. We're to proclaim it. We're to take it from receiving it, and then we're to transmit it. We make it known in places where Christ has not yet been named. So Paul says, if that has taken place, if Christ has sent out preachers, preachers have been faithful to preach, then Paul says, okay, where's the problem? Well, look at our second section. It's not that the gospel wasn't relayed to the Jews. The problem is that it wasn't received by the Jews. So look at verse 16. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? Now, this is a quote uh, just a few verses after the one we just uh, looked at in Isaiah 52. This is actually a quote at the beginning of Isaiah 53. We know that glorious section that we call um, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, a picture of Christ. Isaiah 53.1, this is a direct reference, says, who's believed what he's heard from us? One of the most powerful chapters in the entire Old Testament. The man of sorrows who was despised, rejected, stricken, smitten, afflicted, and pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds were healed. Uh, This, of course, Isaiah 53, is a description of Jesus of Nazareth who went to suffer and die on a Roman cross willingly and sacrificially for our sin. But Isaiah begins this chapter with that question, who's believed what he's heard from us? And Isaiah is anticipating that Israel, who would ever be hearing and not believing, would also reject the Messiah as he's foreshadowed here. And that's actually what the Jews have done. Many Jews will skip Isaiah 53 in their reading. Paul says Israel did hear. They did have someone preach to them. The problem wasn't in the preaching. The problem was that they didn't obey. Uh, Listen, I have kids. Uh, I have teens, in fact. So I have two teens, so you really know how to pray for me. And, And parents... I'll just ask you this. How many of you have kids here today? You have children. Okay, awesome. Well, the question is, does the problem, does the problem with the dirty dishes in the sink, does that lie with the kids not hearing us to tell them to do the dishes? Oh, I didn't hear you, mom. No, mom declared you're to do the dishes. The problem wasn't in hearing it. The problem was in the child obeying. And someone says, well, actually, the real problem is you didn't use paper plates. (laughs) I I get it. I get it. And no nudging, mom. Don't nudge your son here today. So this isn't a lack of hearing or understanding. It's a refusal to obey. The word for obey here in verse 16 is the Greek word hupakuo, and it means to hear under. We actually get our word acoustics from this word. And, And what does it mean? It means to line up under someone or to submit to them. So what Paul is saying here is to hear the gospel is not just to nod your head and agree that it sounds convincing. No, it means to line up in obedience under. It does not mean, well, I guess I'll try to identify as a Christian today. No, it means to line up in obedience, submitting our life to the truth claims of Christ and receiving him as Lord. Well, Israel has not done this. They've not heard the gospel, and thus they've not submitted their life Well, they have heard the gospel, but they've not submitted their life to Christ with a heart of obedience. So then, 
Paul says in the next section, so then faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing. You must hear the word of Christ. How can anyone come to faith in Christ if they've never heard of Christ? Now, there's some allegations of Muslims around the world having dreams where Jesus appears to them. But my question is, how can you come to true faith in Christ without knowing or understanding the gospel? Then we've got St. Francis of Assisi putting out, today we're putting out bumper stickers and t-shirts. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Um, I understand what he's getting at. I really do. I understand we should demonstrate the truth of what we believe. I get that. But let's be honest. This St. Francis quote is really not helpful, nor is it uh, ultimately true. Why? Because it's always necessary to use words when you're preaching the gospel. That didn't get an amen, but it needed one. (laughs) It's always necessary. Paul doesn't say faith comes by seeing. Just just live a good Christian life, but don't ever open your mouth. He doesn't say faith comes by seeing, but faith comes by hearing. Not a single convert has ever come to faith who never heard or understood the gospel. So it's not as if someone just sees your good deeds, they see your love, they see that you're kind, they see your posture in the world. So they say, I have no idea what they believe, but I'm just going to turn my heart and bow my knee to the lordship of Christ. That's not what happens. They have to have heard of Jesus's name to submit to Jesus's name. Stephen Cole says it this way, Paul, who wrote so strongly about God's choice of Jacob and rejection of Esau while they were still in the womb, also wrote these wonderful verses about the need to preach the gospel to all people. He wasn't contradicting himself. God chooses who will be saved And he chooses the means through which they will be saved, namely, preaching the gospel to them. Now, this, just as a side note, is reason number 9,020 that we need faithful, expositional preaching, declaration of the gospel, of God's word. So if faith comes by hearing God's word, that's where faith comes from. And people can't hear unless they're preached to, someone is sent to preach to them, then how much more important is it that we are faithful to exposit God's word line upon line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, to truly allow faith to be received by sinners. So we need more faithful Bible teachers, those who are willing to stand and deliver God's word about God's son under God's power. Listen, if you haven't heard about this yet, Pastor Mike and I are praying about more young men and older men who would consider joining our teaching cohort where we can equip you to exposit Scripture. And if you are interested in that, let us know. Well, Paul has a series of quotes in verses 18 through 21, and and the cool thing is they answer all the questions that he asks. So let's look at this third section, rejecting the gospel. Look at verse 18. Paul comes back to this. He says, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. And then he quotes Psalm 19.4. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Paul's question is answered by the witness of Hebrew scriptures. And actually here, one we weren't expecting. He, he says, if faith comes by hearing, then maybe Israel has not heard. He says, oh, they've heard. And he quotes a verse we weren't expecting. He quotes Psalm 19, which describes general revelation. Remember, we learned about general revelation back in Romans 1. This is the revelation of God's invisible attributes through what is visible to us in creation. And in Psalm 19, we learned that the heavens declare what? 
the glory of God. Day after day, night after night, they continually declare the glory of God. And so Paul's quoting this psalm to make the point that just as general revelation extends to the ends of the earth, there's not a place on the planet that his glory hasn't been extended to. And even though he's making that point symbolically, he's making that as a point to say the gospel also has a global witness as it's gone out into the entire known world at the time of this writing, or you could say the entire Roman influence of the world. So they have, they have heard. Well, maybe they didn't understand. Well, look at verse 19. But I asked, did Israel not understand? And then he quotes Deuteronomy 32. He says, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. If you're taking notes, this is Deuteronomy 32, 21. A lot of us don't know this, but Moses was a songwriter. And there in Deuteronomy 32, Moses writes a song, sings a song to Israel before they enter into the land of promise. And so the idea here is that the ones who are not a nation, the ones he says are foolish, they're not the Jews, but who? They're not the Jews, they're the Gentiles. And so remember from Romans 9.25, remember when Paul quoted Hosea, that the ones who are not his people would be called his people? So this was foretold back in Deuteronomy 32. And Paul says, people knew this. You knew this even before you inhabited the land, that I'm going to make you jealous of people who are not my people. So they weren't ignorant of it. Well, then he says uh, a quote from Isaiah 65. He says, Isaiah is so bold as to say, this is the same train of thought, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, so that's not Israel, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This section, these two quotes are Isaiah 65. The first one is verse 1. The second is verse 2. So jot that down, Isaiah 65. And in those verses, God is speaking directly and saying he allowed himself to be found of all people, by all people, by the Gentiles. But not only that, he took the posture of revealing himself and pursuing those who weren't even aware of him. But then on the flip side, on the split screen, he's shown the extended initiative to Israel, but he keeps being rejected by her. So the unbelief of Israel, captured in Romans 9 and 10, includes God's purpose of election as much of Jacob was not believing Israel. But there was a remnant, the Israel within Israel, you could say. And when we peel back the curtain and we see into the, the heart of the unbelieving Jew, it's not that they hadn't heard it. It's that their heart was dull. It's their heart was stubborn. Their heart was impenitent. So we look at this, we say, well, hang on. And we won't get into this today. We will in the coming weeks. But God's sovereignty, man's responsibility exists together. God was sovereign to declare the gospel, the good news to the Jew. And in their obstinance, they didn't receive it. MacArthur says there's no absolute determinism here. In salvation, there must be volition. There's choice on our part. You can't come up with a lopsided theology that puts everything on God's side and does not allow within God's plan and within God's power and within God's sovereign grace for human response. And so as we apply this, stay with me. I'm going to just apply this in a couple ways. First, the central problem, 
in rejecting the gospel, it lies with the will. It wasn't in the preaching. Paul's diagnosis is that the problem had nothing to do with the preachers or the senders. The problem resided in the heart and in the will of the person who refused to receive or believe. Now, listen, beloved, sometimes we will misdiagnose the problem when someone we love or someone we know doesn't come to faith in Christ. So what I mean by that is that we think, well, if I would have been a better witness, I kind of blew my witness in front of them. Or if I would have had the apologetic argument like tightened up and that person was asking me questions about the faith, if I would have had my, my apologetics down, then I would have won them to faith. If I answered their difficult questions correctly, then they would have become a Christian. Uh, or, you know, if we could just make our church a little more relevant, if we could just like tweak it a little bit, then we could be an effective witness in our generation. So the question here is, do we need to examine, do we need to examine our witness and be equipped to answer theological questions? Yes, absolutely. But that's not the ultimate problem. And it certainly isn't solved by trying to make the church more fashionable, in-season, hip, or relevant. You see, the Bible addresses sin and our spiritual condition before a holy creator. And nothing is more relevant or all-encompassing than this. And so, see, the problem isn't that the gospel hasn't been preached properly or that if we could just come up with convincing arguments, then I can debate someone into the kingdom. Or, man, I wish I would have really been able to witness more effectively. No, the central problem lies not in the perfection of our preaching, but it lies in the will. It's not that men can't believe, it's that they won't believe. Ligon Duncan says it this way, the will is the battleground of faith, and the great satanic weapon against faith is moral depravity. The depravity of Israel kept her from embracing the Savior. So may your If you're here today, may your moral depravity, the bondage of your own will held against a holy and merciful God not lead you to rejecting the good news. There's no other way to be saved. It's only by repenting of your sin and trusting Christ. And as we began our service today, uh, as Ryan shared, it's, it's only by grace. It's grace alone. Well, secondly, I want to say this to apply this, that a church that will not evangelize will fossilize. Some will say, well, if you believe in predestination or election, then that just removes the urgency of evangelism. And I would disagree. I think it reinforces the urgency even that much more. If it diminishes anything, it's the pressure. Election removes the pressure for me to have to perform in my own strength. When I know God is sovereign and salvation depends on God and not my polished presentation or my perfect apologetic argument or my demeanor, then, wow, I'm free. I'm free to herald the good news and trust God to work mercifully by his sovereign will. Listen to what John Alexander said. He's the former Inner Varsity Christian Fellowship president. He said that back in, this back in 67, Urbana. He said, at the beginning of my missionary career, I said that if predestination were true, I could not be a missionary. Now, after some 20 years of struggling with the hardness of the human heart, I say I could never be a missionary unless I believed in the doctrine of predestination. Listen, if we choose not to evangelize, we just sit back, well, God's sovereign. I don't need to evangelize. Then we, we cut out a vital link of this golden chain of gospel mission. And so some people ask, why don't we do more altar calls 
or, or more opportunities for response here at Shoreline. And I would argue the primary purpose for our gathering is to worship. It's to be equipped. When we scatter, that is the primary mission for us is witness. And so though we expect and invite unbelievers to join us, to gather with us, the ultimate reason we gather here is to exalt Christ and to equip the saints. That's why we exist. We, we give opportunity to respond, and I always invite someone, come talk with me, let's pray, let's talk. Uh, and sometimes people come to faith in our gatherings, and we celebrate that. We would never expel someone uh, or expel that opportunity. But we, we have to say this, the weekend gathering, the Sunday service is not an outreach. It's a gathering of God's people to meet together in person, to worship God, to study his word, to fellowship together. And then as we dismiss, that's not just go have a great day. It's to be commissioned out into the community in the spirit's power to be his witnesses and to proclaim the gospel with our lives and yes, with our lips. And so we believe in personal outreach, personal evangelism. And yes, sometimes we organize this as a church community, but the most effective evangelism does not happen when we have a block party and then say, raise your hand if you want to have a better life. We would never do that, by the way. No, the best evangelism happens not when a hand is raised, but when a conversation is had. Not necessarily when you walk down the aisle in a response to a plea, but when a believer walks through suffering and doubt and despair with an unbeliever and then admonishes them, as many of you have with those, with those friendships, with those relationships, you admonish them to surrender their heart and will to Christ as Lord. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So may the Spirit empower us to be his witnesses, knowing Jesus is with us to the very end of the age. Well, finally, I would be remiss to study this passage without saying this to us, and that is number three. Step up to fulfill your role in what I call the great task unfinished. What is the great task unfinished? Well, it's completing the work that Jesus commissioned us, as I just referenced in Matthew 28. As a church, we see the need to support and to send missionaries to unreached people groups. So when you hear every week our mercy and mission, we focus on mercy ministries here locally. But when we think of global missions, we as a church are laser-focused on specifically resourcing church planting among the most unreached. So we want to find, we're praying for, where are the largest, most unengaged peoples and where are the missionaries that are going there? So let's raise them up, let's equip them, let's send them, let's support them. That's something you can be involved with here, but there's more. We can be involved in being obedient to the Great Commission by going, by sending, and I would say there's a third category. We go we send or we disobey. <laughs> and so God, God is calling some of you, and I'm, I'm speaking to those of you maybe who are younger, God may be calling some of you to stop buying into this American nightmare that we are surrounded by in Southwest Florida, where you go to Florida to retire and collect seashells. Uh, and listen, you already live in Southwest Florida, so the mystique is gone. You're already here. You're already here, everyone moves to retire. So let's ditch the American nightmare that says just relax and lay back. No, as Piper says, don't waste your life. Invest it in kingdom purposes. So think of the peoples around the world, the Uyghur peoples of China. Think of the Sheikh peoples of Bangladesh, the Pashtun of India. Just think about peoples who have never heard the gospel. One day, 
those people groups will have someone among them who declares the praises of God. And it may be because you are willing to go or you are willing to send. Let's step up. Let's step up to fulfill this. How will they hear unless someone preaches to them? How will they preach unless they're sent? So let's step up to fulfill whatever role God has impressed upon us within the Great Commission so that faithful missionaries are sent to preach and one day someone may believe the gospel. As we close this morning, we're going to transition to a time of communion and we say this every month when we take communion that we uh, invite only followers of Jesus. This is not some religious practice that you do to win favor with God. By no means, the favor has been extended to us through the finished work of Christ. So this is only for those who trust Christ by faith. But in a moment, as we sing, the ushers are going to distribute the bread and the cup. You just take the two cups, hold on to them, and we'll receive them after a few moments of prayer and singing. Um, But as we close the sermon, very few people have heard of a man by the name of John Harper. And I was fascinated this week. I had to snope it. I had to go on Snopes, which isn't even that reliable. And I had to say, is this an actual true story? And it is. John Harper was a 19th century Scottish minister, and he was traveling to Moody Church from Scotland. He was going to preach three months at Moody Church in Chicago. And God had done some remarkable things in Scotland just prior to this. You could call it revival, renewal, a great work of God's Spirit. So he went to get on a ship to cross the Atlantic and spend three months in Chicago at Moody Church. Well, he bought Uh, tried to book tickets for the first ship that was crossing, the Lusitania, and unfortunately he was unable to secure passage on that ship, but he was able to secure passage on a very new and exciting world-renowned ship called the Titanic. On Sunday evening, after worshiping that morning, April 14th, 1912, the ship he was crossing on, as we know, struck the iceberg and began to sink. And uh, eyewitnesses say that that Harper removed his life vest and gave it to someone else and began walking up and down the decks of the Titanic, imploring the workers to allow women, children, and unbelievers to take the ships. Eventually, the ship capsized. He falls into the water. Some say he plunged himself into the water. And he began to swim from person to person in the icy waters of of the North Atlantic and began to plead with men and with women. Uh, saying to them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And one eyewitness, uh, a Scotsman named Aguilla Webb, said that he had come to him initially and said, are you a Christian? He said, no. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Well, then he swam away and began to talk to some others. And then very slowly, as the hypothermia was setting in, Harper comes back to this young man. He says, are you saved yet? (laughs) And the young man says, no. And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And at that moment, he went under the water. And this young man, four years later in Hamilton, Canada, stood up at a meeting of survivors, and he said, there alone in the night and with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. See, may we have the same boldness and urgency to spend every, even our last breath, to plead with men and women to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we trust God the Father to draw them, yes. Uh, But unlike Isaiah, we have the Spirit's power and Jesus' promise that he'll be with us until the end of the age. This isn't a failed or a doomed mission. Revelation 5 reveals, and if you bow your heads with me, 
We'll close in prayer and then we'll sing. By your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Father, even so, may we be faithful to send and to preach and to hear and to obey. We thank you for these truths and we pray now as we transition to a time uh, of communion, a, a time of reflection, a time of, of confession, Lord, that you would continue to be glorified. Lord, we ask that you would give us opportunities, occasions to be among unbelievers, that we'd have boldness, we'd have expediency to share Christ and not shrink back, not be afraid. Lord, give us boldness to proclaim the gospel. And Lord, we pray that many would receive, that many would come to faith through the proclamation of the good news that Jesus saves. Lord, thank you for this time. We ask now that you would receive our prayers as we sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.